0: Welcome, Uh, my name is Jamil, and I'll be introducing today's event. Uh, Today's event is titled 12 Years of Injustice, the Story of the Holy Land Foundation 5. I will also be doing the Q&A after the panel discussion finishes. So today's event uh, commemorates 12 years since the unjust uh, prosecution of the Holy Land Foundation 5, some people call it HLF5 for short. Um, the, the, the five that we're talking about are Shukri Abu Bakr, Muhammad Al-Mazin, Hassan Alashi, Mufid um, Abdul Qader, and Abdul Rahman Ode, who are each serving between 15 and 65 years in federal penitentiaries. In 2013, uh, Miko started investigating this, this very important case. This is a case that's uh, really mired with a lot of uh, injustice. Um, and uh, uh, miscarriages of justice. Um, and, and Miko started uh, meeting up with, the, with them and themselves and their lawyers. And he developed a relationship with the men's families about this very devastating um, situation and, and, and the, the broader effects on the, on the families of these five men. So he, he took the time, he traveled to remote federal prison complexes where the five were being held to conduct interviews with them. And then finally in 2018, Miko uh, put out a book um, on this very subject titled Injustice, the Holy Land Foundation Five, um, which really traces the courses of the case and presents uh, a a terrifying picture of of government overreach in post 9-11 America through a story that really has not gotten any kind of mainstream press or or, or much uh, attention. so, uh, you know, in today's event, uh, Miko has the honor of speaking with uh, some of the sons and daughters of the Holy Land Foundation Five. And I'd just like to introduce you to them all. We have with us uh, Zuheira and Nida Abu Bakr. Um, we have Tasneem El Mazain. And I think coming later is going to be uh, Azmat Elashi. Uh, but we also have a, a special guest with us today. We have Lina Al-Arayan, who is the executive director of the Coalition for Civil Freedoms and the daughter of Dr. Sami Al-Arayan, uh, another Palestinian-American who was uh, deported on, on similar trumped-up terrorism charges. So uh, first off, we want to extend a huge thank you to our panel today for being with us, for your time. Um, we, we definitely really appreciate it. And um, lastly, we are live streaming this event to Miko's Facebook page. So if you wanna share this with others, you can go ahead and send them to facebook.com slash Miko Pellet And uh, we will also be making this available um, through recording in a couple of days on mikopellet.com. And um, there will also be a post uh, event email going out to everyone who registered for this event with all that information. And um, in the meantime, while you're hearing the, the speakers um, and the discussion, hit that Q&A button at the bottom if you have a question for anyone in particular. And hopefully we'll be able to get to those in 60, 70 minutes or so. And we're hoping to uh, to conclude um, within 90 minutes. So um, I think that's gonna do it for me. I'm gonna hand it over to Miko to get the discussion started.
1: Thank you, Jamil. And thank you to everybody who's... Uh... Listening, who's uh, joining us? Apologies to the, your people in Europe and the UK. I know this is a bad time for you, but we had to make accommodations to make sure that the panelists, uh, the time worked for them. Uh, Lena, thank you for joining us. Zaira, Nida, Sneh, uh, thank you so much um, for joining, and also for all these years of, of um, talking to me about this case, about this uh, horrifying case. Um, and you know it's been it's been described in so many ways as you know it's been described as one of the, as the most egregious case of domestic injustice committed in the name of America's war on terror. It's been you know, but I, I, I just find it as to be horrifying, an absolutely a horrifying story. And that was really the the impression I had from the very very beginning. Um, and um, I have to say the Your dads, the five men, plus uh, Lena, your dads, uh, Dr. Sammy, who's not part of the Overland Foundation Five, but I want to talk about his story as well, because um, there are a lot of parallels, obviously, um, are really the finest people I have ever met. And you guys are uh, really my life. I'm a better person for knowing them and for knowing all of you guys. Um, And yet um, the United States government found it, necessary to put them and put all of your families and really the entire community, um, through hell, through what can only be described as hell. And, um, when you guys talk about it and, you know, and I spoke to, to you guys for many, many hours as, as I was interviewing you for the book. And again, you guys have all been extremely generous with your time and your, and the information. Um, and, uh, It's The way you describe it is very graceful. It's almost kind of like casually as as though this is, you know, something that happened and we have to live with, which of course is true. But at the same time, it is inexcusable, unjustifiable in any way, shape or form. And we have to remember that we're talking about Palestinians who have already left Palestine, who were not going to be able to go back to Palestine, have created homes and a family and a community here in the United States, and these particular five men, and Dr. Sami Larayan as well, Lina's father, were um, really pillars in every in every possible way, besides being incredible family men and, and fathers, which I know from, from having spoken to you guys, um, you girls, I should say, actually, um, they were pillars in their community. These were men who did everything they possibly can to give back, to contribute, to help. Um, there was not an, not a, not an ounce of, of, of racism, of prejudice in them. All they wanted to do really was good, to do good for the, their families, to do good for the community and to do good for mankind. And that's really what led them to the Holy Land Foundation and to the incredible work that the Holy Land Foundation had done over the years, not only for Palestine, not only for Palestinian children, but here in the United States and, and other places around the world where there was a need. And they had their their creed was you know that they that they provide a service based on need not creed you know, and this was this was their entire life and it still is you know I've met them in prison several times um, and it was an incredible experience for me to meet with them and to get to know them well um, of course to go through the experience of visiting somebody in prison is a horrifying experience in in and of itself um, and so. We're going to have Asma, uh, Hassan Elashi's daughter, join us. Hassan, by the way, is the only one who I was not permitted to visit of, of, the, of the whole five. The, all the other ones I was able to visit in prison more than once. And, uh, and uh, Mufid's daughter, Sarah, won't be able to join us. Her mother, their mother is in ICU. She's been very, very ill. So our prayers and our thoughts go to her. But sadly, Sarah... And she, Sarah was actually one of the first person I spoke to. Came up to me and told me the story. Um, and if anybody's interested, there is an excellent documentary on Al Jazeera, a two-part documentary about the case. So perhaps Jamil can throw the, the link uh, as well, so people can pay attention, listen to that. Um, and then, like you know, like Jamil said, I was I was uh, if you know if there's one thing I if I, if I die tomorrow, if there's one thing I'm glad I did in this life is that I was able to meet all of you guys and write this book and put that information out there. It was an incredible journey. It was not an easy one, but I'm very very pleased um, that I did it. And the feedback I got from all of your all of your dads, including uh, your dad Lena, including Dr. Sammy, was uh, was very positive. So I'm very pleased about that. I want to start from the beginning, and um, you know it's 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 been a long road. It's been 12 years, Um, and that's really 12 years since they went to jail, but the, but the, 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 the story and the, the, um, the horrors that you guys had to go through um, as families, as individuals, as children of these great fathers, of these great men, began long before that. So what I wanna do is I wanna to listen to each one of you, maybe take five minutes and just talk about what happened. You were very young. All of you were very young then. You're still very young. So, I mean, you were very, very young. Um, you already told me these stories. Much of it is in the book. But I think it's really, really important for people to hear it coming from you. What you experienced, what suddenly happened, not as adults that you are today looking back and with the understanding and the knowledge that you have today, but what was the experience for you when this whole thing suddenly uh, suddenly happened. Suddenly blew up. And maybe Tasneem, I'll start with you, and then we'll go uh, go from there. So talk a little bit about yourself. Tell us who you are, for you know, and then and then go ahead and tell us again as you experienced it.
2: Sure. Um, thank you for having us, Miko, and it's lovely to see um, the ladies here as well. Um, I think my experience is, well, a little bit about me. My name is Tisney. I live in California. And um, I currently work as a a dietitian and a health coach. So I'm very thankful to give back into my community um, in the health area. In regards to my experience with what happened with like my dad and the HLF-5, um, I was really young. I I think it was was probably 12 when they raided into our house. Um, I think I still get, some level of PTSD from that. Um, my dad, they raided into our house um, and acted like they didn't know where my dad was and did a whole scene. Um, I remember being really young and seeing like guns and people having serious faces. And and I also remember that they didn't have a warrant with them and my brother's asking for it. And um, they acted like they didn't know where my dad was um and then after some time, I don't remember the exact time frame, um, I remember that uh, we found out they arrested my dad before they even raided our house. And so that was pretty traumatic. Um, and I think that's kind of the Hold start.
1: Up, let, me, let me stop you there because I remember when you told me that story, uh, the first time we, we sat in chat, we were still at UC at San Diego State. Um, but just 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 let's just slow down a little bit and go back through that, okay? So you're 12 years old, your home is raided by armed uh, police, federal agents, maybe you could talk about that. They go through this whole thing where they're um, in your home, expecting to look for your dad or find your dad. And the whole time they've, oh, he's already been arrested. He was already picked up on his way back from the mosque early that morning. Am I right? Correct. Talk about that and just let people kind of absorb this, this, this unbelievable you know unbelievable story unbelievable scenario
2: yeah um so they uh i remember it being really early in the morning it's before like our morning prayer around that morning prayer fajid and um the first thing that i remember is my sister walking in saying a prayer um, and i was all confused they asked us to put our like scarves on and come downstairs and it's, um, I'm, I have seven siblings. And so we all came down, my mom came down and we were sitting in the living room and they were trying there. I don't really remember what kind of cops or FBI or SWAT. I just remember people being like armed with guns. Um, I slightly was upset because I had cleaned the floor Um, the night before and their shoe marks were all over our tiles Um, but that was me being very young and annoyed and I remember um, I tried to smile at one of the officers and they gave me kind of this really mean look and um, it kind of had a sour taste of kind of what's going on here they were asking for my dad we were saying we didn't my dad used to pray at different mosques so we didn't really know which mosque he had prayed at that morning Uh, my mom had asked them, you know, can you put your guns away? Like, I have young kids here. This is really unnecessary. Like, none of us are armed. And um, one of them was like, oh, do you need a translator? And my mom's like, I speak English perfectly. I'm telling you to put the guns away. Um, And so I remember we were kind of settling from everything that was happening. When it first happened, before, when I was sleeping, my brother had asked who was at the door, and they threatened to like open the door. And he's like, "Where's your warrant?" And then they barged in. When they barged in, um, my brother kept asking, "Like, where's your warrant?" And they ended up arresting or handcuffing my brother. Um, and so, thing, fast just
1: just just one more thing, just kind of back backing up just a tiny little bit. So, what this is early morning, right? What ta- what time was this? Five, six, seven in the morning
2: it it had to be around that time
1: 5 6 so it, it yeah summer so there was no school right you guys were no school. school so all the kids are in bed and the house is being raided
2: mm-hmm. and
1: that's not home
2: mm-hmm. and the
1: house is being raided by by office armed officers for reasons that you know you're not even told
2: yeah we're not told um they finally unhandcuffed my brother um, when we were sitting down uh in like the gathering and then um they were asking like where my dad was and acting like they didn't know where he was um and then at one point they were like oh he's on his way back let's turn off the lights and my mom was like why are you turning off the lights like my dad has medical conditions it's gonna scare him and then they're like, okay let's leave one light open um and they left part of the light and i remember hearing assalamu alaikum um, like peace be upon you and then some sounds and it's like oh we got him we got him so we actually thought that he was at home um and they had taken my dad and they all went I think to Texas uh for the hearing part of it and when my dad came back out on bail uh, we found out that's when we found out that they had arrested my dad before they even raided the house and so that was very traumatizing to hear um Even that morning, we were all really confused what was going on, there's obviously news and everything happening. And then um, I remember going to the courthouse, um, and this was before they transferred them, but I remember going to the courthouse and this was probably a very vivid image that I still have till today, which There were a lot of community members like outside of the courthouse and everybody was very supportive. Yeah, in downtown San Diego. And um, I remember wanting to go in, but I think it was so packed that they had to ask people to leave um, so that the family can come in. And I was sharing a seat with my brother and my mom was sitting next to me. And I remember um, people were there, multiple people there that I think it was more of, like, do you, are you guilty, not guilty, or do you plead guilty, not guilty, and so I'm hearing all these counts of, like, this person murdered, or this person got these drugs, or whatever, and then I see my dad come out in an orange suit, and I lost it, like, I literally couldn't stop crying, and I was trying to hold myself together, and I remember my dad trying to, like, smile at me, like, hey, we're okay, Um, and it was hard, it was hard to hear all these criminals, or these people being told that this is what, you know, they're, acts of bad deeds of whatever it is. And my dad, who's literally the biggest teddy bear is standing amongst them dressed like them and did nothing wrong. Um, So that was this kind of hopefully start of that.
1: Yeah, and just to give some perspective, uh, your dad was really the Imam and one of the most respected people certainly in the the community in San Diego, everybody that knew and loved and respected him regardless of their faith, regardless of their politics, he was an admirer, still is, actually. Um, and he's also the elder one of the five, the uh, most elderly one. And when I met him, uh, I met him twice in, in prison in, uh, in Long Beach. Um, and it's really hard to describe. You know, he's, he's, he's an older gentleman with a cane, but incredibly strong man, incredibly powerful man, incredibly dedicated and... Um, determined man you know it was um it's it's you know i've I've seen a lot of inspiring people and figures in my life spiritual strong physical men and he was just really really an incredible uh inspiration so thanks for sharing that i know it's not um i know it's not easy i still remember the first time we sat there at san Diego state and you told me these stories and they were just etched they're like burned into my mind it was just so horrible so so horrifying to hear that I see that Asma joined us. Hey Asma, how are you?
3: Yeah, I'm good, thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us. I know you were, you're uh, something going on there that evening. Yeah,
3: and then room. I messed up with the time difference, so. That's
1: okay, no worries. Um, so I, I just asked everyone to go back and tell us what happened and what you remember, like what happened when you were, when, when at the time, because you were a lot younger, of course. You were very young when, when, when they came and took your dad, the um, again, the only one who I was not permitted to visit in jail, but I visited you guys, of course, at your home several times and I know your mom and you guys well. Um, can you tell us what happened from your, pers- from your point of view as, as a child, when it actually took place, when they came to get your dad?
3: Yeah. So tell us a little bit
1: about yourself too, if you don't mind.
3: Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, my name is Asma. I'm now a mother of two, uh, live oh, in sure. Dallas, Kansas. Uh, yes, um, and so a little bit about the background. My dad was actually arrested, um, while like so different from, from all the other defendants, he was actually arrested on his way um, back from the morning prayer from the mosque. So, um, and, and this was um, so I, I have I didn't witness that arrest scene, which is very traumatic. But um, the second time he got arrested, I actually did witness it. They came to our house and I remember saying, oh, oh, God, not again. And this is happening like and you know, the, the loud, very traumatic knocks on the door. Um, And um, my dad already like kind of knew the drill and and he knew they couldn't come in without a search warrant, so he did not allow them to come and they were even trying to come through our backyard and knock on our window say we see you open the door open the door and my dad was. um, It was really early, like everyone else, so he was just getting dressed calling his lawyer um, telling him what's going on before opening the door. Um, and then when they opened the door, they grabbed him so, so aggressively, you know, as if he was just, um, such a dangerous criminal, um, and arrested him quickly, um, and took him to the car. And my sister, I remember walked out and, you know, was, was, was crying and yelling these things. And my dad would would just try to encourage her and told her, keep your head, keep your head up high. And, um. And, uh, you know, they took him like that, that that's, that's what I remember now, but, um, and I remember looking out the window actually from my room and seeing the cop cars, seeing the cop cars like leave and take my dad and me just being devastated, you know, and, and crying and everything. So that's kind of the scene I remember or that I, I, suppressed and try not to remember but you know what I mean you said
1: something about he was arrested already once before and then he was arrested again can you just touch on that a little bit please yes
3: so the the first time he was arrested it was for a separate um a separate trial so he was actually owned um a company with his brothers called Infocom and it was a um a company that did like telecom computer, Arabic computers. Um, and he was, uh, basically after 9-11 they, they were persecuting a whole bunch of, you know, Muslims. And at, at that time it was just like the Muslims were scapegoats. So they were um, actually accusing their company of some, some sort of um, tear, I guess, it, it was just silly. Now I don't remember the exact charges. It was it was probably um, something they said, that
1: they imported. They imported computers, I think, to countries. That yeah,
3: yeah, Libya and other countries that weren't allowed. And and a typical company would just have you know have to pay a fine for that or something. But it was a perfect like scenario of um, you know Arab um, Muslim Palestinian um, post 9/11, and so they put them all in a courtroom. And, you know, with, with the jurors that were very fearful at that time, because it was just in the midst of everything. Um, and, you know, they were charged, I think, for, um, they both, they all had like six year, six to seven year sentences. And so my dad actually didn't start his sentence until a little bit later than the rest of my uncles, because he was involved in this HLF trial so um as as soon as that rolled around he was he started his prison sentence um already so he was the only defendant um of the hlf that was already in prison for like about a couple of years before um the rest of them started their hlf or the rest of the hlf five started their sentence so
1: yeah. So they, uh, he had gone through this once ahead of everybody else, and then of course, And, right. and then of course, with everybody, as the Holy Land Foundation case was kicking in, and um, the, the the stories that you know, I communicated with him by email, of course, and he was really, really very generous, and um, you know, talking about his childhood, talking about growing up in Gaza, you know, as a, as a as a as a Gaza native. Um, incredible, incredible stories that he shared with me. And then, of course, the experiences being in prison, um, both the horrors and also his willingness to contribute and and teach and help others and so on. Um, And you guys, too, I've been to your home and you guys have been incredibly sweet and generous and your mom and I have talked and and exchanged emails a lot as well. Um, Nida, you were probably the youngest of... Well, you are the youngest, but you were the really, really young when all this was taking place. And I know that you uh, have some pretty powerful, strong memories of, of that day, of what yeah. took
4: place. Actually, someone commented saying that it was like in like a one of those Israeli raids. Mm. That's exactly what I felt like it was. Honestly, um, I was seven years old at the time um, in two thousand and one, and then it was like what five in five in the morning. 5 in the morning and we heard um, just like a lot going on outside and I went to the front door to figure out what's going on and then all of a sudden the door was pushed open. You know we heard FBI and before you know it, it was just pushed open and then I see like a stampede of um, FBI agents like coming at me. Mind you, I'm the seven-year-old girl standing by the door (laughs) and then these people three times my size are all just coming in. They start raiding the house, going in every hallway of our home. And then they rounded us up like as if we were cattle or something into the living room. Um, one of the agents actually grabbed my little sister um, and like threw her at Zahira. and um, And they were just asking like, what's, where's your sister? Where's your sister? And and at the time we had our sister, um, may God rest her soul at the hospital. Um, Don't forget, they know everything that's going on in your family. They knew our sister was in the hospital at the time, but they're asking us, where's your sister? Where's your sister? And like, they even had me um, walk one of the agents to her room. And then she tries to, like, be nice to me. She's like, oh, she has a nice room. <laughs> and I'm like, really? Okay. Um, and then um, one guy even got physical with you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wasn't even, like, wearing my hijab
5: at the time because it's, like, 5 in the morning.
1: So, hold on. Just let me take you guys back for a sec. So, it's 5 o'clock in the morning. Right. It's, right? It's, like, early in the morning. You guys are really all asleep. It's, right. There's no school, right? It's summer, so like
3: yeah. there's no
1: reason even to get up or anything like that early. Yeah, I
5: had, and I had, then, I summer. and then they're banging on the door, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and so obviously, you don't have time. I think my mom was able to put like her salat clothes on, um, but my room was more to the back, so I didn't have time, and um, so I, you know, just it's just so chaotic, and you know sometimes i can be a little bit outspoken so I was i'm gonna
1: stop trying. you i'm gonna stop you just a second because there's something i something that you told me very early on oh. and i was considering you said something about looking at your phone
4: yeah <laughs>
1: and what you saw on your phone i'm gonna let you tell the story but
5: yeah
1: i was considering making that the title of the book
5: yeah wow that tell
1: was that a- story about what yeah. you saw on the phone
5: so I didn't really, I didn't see the phone till after everything happened, right? So me and Noor Asmat's as, um, older sister, we were very like aware, you know, when it's actually been um, December 3rd, 2001, was the day the HLF closed. So we're actually, yeah. wow. Okay, Is so the raid happened in over
1: oh. 19 years. We're actually 19 years to the day.
5: 19 years to the day that it closed. 19
1: years to the day that the HLF closed. Well, right. so I knew there was a reason we postponed it and made it today. So, yeah,
5: that's, it's perfect. So, you know, and so I, I usually, I had my phone next to me and me and Noor were like just talking the night before, about like everything that happened, because when they closed the HLF, they actually came to our home. So I was very aware of like, you know, you ask for, for the warrant, you do this, you do that. And, you know, you, you associate, you know, the black Tahoe or the black SUV with FBI. And so like, I, I kinda, I was old enough to kind of understand that. But I don't think, um, even if I were to go back or or think about it, I don't think there was ever a day where I would ever imagine that I would be dealing with what the Israelis do to these innocent um, children in Palestine. I never thought I would experience that in this country. And so, you know, literally, you know, would like, I need to put my scarf on, let me put my clothes on. And it was like, no, and, you know, dragging me and, you know, and and I was very, I've always been a very like, you know, especially when it came to my dad, very overprotective. And I was like, you guys could have done this in a more civil way. He's a law abiding citizen. You could have had him meet you somewhere like you don't have to do it this way. And I got in the face of like there we had like Garland police officers, we had FBI agents, and I'm pretty sure there was SWAT. There was about like 14 10 to 15 they grabbed my dad all went into the bathroom with him like how humiliating is that my dad was in his pajamas he's like can i at least change um asking my mom do you have any weapons and my mom's like really like do you have to do this in front of girls and uh, little girls and and mind you my sister senabil was had just had a surgery the day before um so it was already like traumatizing um and my dad's like telling us, Benat, don't worry. And I'm sitting here like, do you have children? Like, how would, you, how would you do this? If you had children, how could you do this to these children? Sharuk was three. Mm-hmm. So they throw her at me and they're like, you need to be a good example for your sister. You you really need to calm the hell down and all this, you know, language. And so that like the biggest guy out of the bunch, I, I promise you is at least like 400 pounds. He like grabbed me and he's like, I'm going to arrest you. Um, you want to join your dad? And literally afterwards I had bruises like all over all over um and you know you see this image of your dad handcuffed in his pajamas um walking out on a summer morning and you're just like screaming you're talking and you're thinking that all of this is going to do something somehow Yeah. It,
4: it,
5: you know realistically it's not but in the moment um and he just looks back and smiles and then i walk back and i'm like furious and i look up at my phone and it's noor it says miss call noor and i hear the message and basically she's trying to give me a heads up. Because mind you, even with Tasneem and everybody, they did it exactly at the same time. So none of us could even communicate. You know what I mean? And so Noor, the, 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 her voice message was, Aju. that's it. Like, Aju. they, came, means they, they came. came. As if like we've been anticipating this, which is truly, really sad. And I think that would have been a really great name for for a book or a series or something like that. But yeah, Aju was basically the voicemail. She left me and she knew I would understand what that meant.
1: And it says a great deal that all she had to do was say that one word and you knew exactly just how, because it was was really the culmination of years and years and years. I mean, to think that at at the age that you were, you were able to identify the FBI vehicles from the other vehicles, from all this kind of stuff, as though you grew up in a criminal kind of uh, environment. Do you know what I mean? I, I
5: had been stopped so many times. So like when the HLF closed in 2001, and when uh, Amr Hassan was dealing with his case even before that, there was a lot going on where I guess we hadn't put two and two together till later, but I was personally stopped. Like I was stopped. I had my, one of my finals in, in UTD and it was in the summer. It was, um, I think either right after the, 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 when they went to jail or they were um, arrested the first after. time. Yeah, I think it was right after. And, you know, the cops followed me from home to UTD. They stopped me. I had my final, final um, interrogated me for like two hours, had no reason from all the trauma. I ended up like locking my keys in the car while, while it's running. And I was telling them like, please, like I need to go. This is like my final. And so like we had seen my dad get stopped for no reason. My dad, like these things happen, but never would we ever imagine that this would happen, you know, for him to, to get arrested in such a, such
4: a traumatic um, and violent way and honestly i think we really did have ptsd after that especially as kids like i was only um i was i was 10 when it happened um actually every time we see a black tahoe or a black suburban or um like those old school cop cars every time we see it like we we just think like it's the fbi and if we see one in our neighborhood that's it like oh it's fbi like we just get scared and, and like that shouldn't I dunno. It just it's not something that a normal a normal child in America should have to deal with. Any child. Yeah.
1: Or anywhere for that matter, of course. Yeah, that one that
6: year. fear is the point though. That's what they want. They want to stir fear in you in the hearts of you, in the community at large. I mean, that's why they put on this big show. Yeah.
1: So yeah, I wanted to ask you one more thing. Um you're kind of the you're the oldest daughter, um, and as you know, you, you two mentioned Sinead and that she was in in the hospital, and you know I dedicated the book to her. Yes. Could you talk to her to us about her a little bit? Because uh, and I know it's adding adding pain on pain on pain, but I think um, she was really a light. I mean, talk talk to her about her. Tell us about her, please.
5: And um, it, it's you, I almost don't know where to start with Sinabil. Um Sinabil is really the reason why, like, we're even here today. Um, the HLF was literally born because of her. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my dad seeing his daughter suffering in a hospital in the best country ever and getting the best services that she could. And at the time, the first intifada had started and my dad was watching the news of these like innocent kids. And he's like, I just wish I could give that to these kids you know what what my daughter is receiving here in this this amazing country amazing you know medical services i want to do that and so that's why was she in the
1: hospital to begin with i'm sorry why was she in the hospital can you talk she was
5: about really sick. We had no idea what was going on so it was a lot of like her getting a lot of tests and things of that sort and then she at nine months was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis at the time, I think the life expectancy was not even seven. five to seven years. Yeah. And then she was also diagnosed with like thalassemia um, and then eventually diabetes. So it was just like getting worse and worse for her. And then, you know, <laughs> she she was everything to my dad. Um, of course, we were all, but, you know, they had this very special um, relationship. And I think, you know, anyone that's met her here um, can, you know, she she never let anything stop her i mean even at the end when she graduated with her bachelor's she had an oxygen tank and she walked that stage in an oxygen tank she never let anything stop her when we'd go visit our dad god every time i think about how evil they were towards her and make her like even take it off for like a few seconds just like that's that to me god that's probably like harder for me than like other things like you know even her death you know that's from allah and everything but the injustice that she had to face um You know, even when she was in the hospital, when when everything happened with their dads, of course, it was all over media. Yeah. Um, She, we had to explain that. She had to explain it to her nurses. But thankfully, the nurses and the doctors, the hospitals all knew my dad for so many years. So there was so much support. Um, But really, um, you know, towards the end of her life, um, she, my dad tried so hard to come closer. But at the time, he was in Terre Haute, Indiana, which was a 16 hour drive. Um, and then it was at the time in the CMU, so it was behind glass. So it was really, really hard for her to travel. And then even if we went in a plane, um, we would still have to rent a car and drive. So all of that was adding stress to her, but she still wanted to see him. Um, but at the end she kept asking for him. And I don't know if we were just oblivious or in denial. We didn't realize what was happening to her, even though it was her every day in the hospital. Um, my dad tried everything. He tried like getting a Skype you know, call, um, approved he tried to even move closer he's in Beaumont now um all these you know we were trying everything and I would just say like the lot I think her death was probably the hardest part of him being in prison for us as a family yeah. just because in general my dad was our backbone we were so close to him I'm, I'm sure everyone has that great relationship with their dad but we didn't have brothers so we were just girls you know and our dad was literally everything to us our, our brother our dad you know And with Sanabil, I mean, he was, you know, managing his time being at the HLF. Mind you, my dad's whole life was just HLF. He didn't even have, Mm -hmm. like, a side business. He had no backup plan. His whole life was HLF. And then managing that with Sanabil and being in the hospital with her.
4: He was actually supposed to be there the night of the raid, by the way.
5: Yeah. And so I think um, her death and her asking for him those last few days, I think that's probably the hardest part where I don't even think I have closure for that because it's just it was in their hands where they could have at least gave him the decency of a Skype call or something of that sort and just knowing that my dad was the one traveling for like family members like you know Janazas or burials or or funerals and he couldn't even be there for his own daughter's death and bury her and I think um that has broken my dad and I don't think there will ever be any type of closure because he's the only one that wasn't able to get that closure or see her or or be there for her in the last few, um, I think that last few, the last yeah. few days were kind of like the hardest. Um, but she, honestly,
4: we like, we didn't really see it coming. She's been, she was sick for 26 years, but like during the last few days, it was like, okay, you know, this is it's getting serious. And like the more my dad called, the more you know aware of the situation that we were
5: and although like, my dad was in prison he predicted everything like he was like listen like i just talked to her it's not looking good i think by tomorrow she's not gonna make it like everything he he, he predicted everything and then you know miko and um we had the um her walk the cf walk that she had prepared for um yeah. she died may 14th she actually graduated college may 14th of 2011 and then passed away um the same date, um, May 14th, um, two years later. And so a couple of days after that was her CF walk that she had been planning for months. She made t-shirts for everybody, like this was her thing. And so she actually passed away just b- days before that. And, and, you know, Miko, you even came for the walk. People traveled for this walk. In reality, they even came for her like funeral. Like the timing was so, um, it was so crazy how everything happened at that time.
1: Yeah, and when I started meeting with um, all of you, she was this. She was just so excited about the idea of writing a book, and and she shared some. Your dad shared some emails with me that she sent to him about how exciting this whole thing was, and uh, so um, that was very very cool. And her whole excitement about this thing, and her hope that this was, you know, that there was, you know, this there was a hopeful, uh, you know, a scenario at the end of this. You know, it was very very. You know, very cute, very sweet, very very empowering, and of course, the email that he sent at the very end, which of course was very very painful and um, and sincere. Um, <clears throat> well, thank you for that. I know this is these are not easy things to uh, to talk about. And uh, Lena, you're uh, I, you you've got the you've got the coalition for civil freedoms, but I want to go back a little bit, and if you would talk about your dad, he had a a, a different experience, although um, it has to do with him being a Palestinian Muslim, outspoken, very active, just a big contributor, really, really pillar of the community in every way, um, an intellectual giant, still is, of course, now he's in Istanbul doing all this great stuff. Um, talk a little bit about the the path that you guys had gone through with him and um you know he's he's free, but he's of course in Istanbul. So and and then your experience growing up with this the same thing kind of what you saw as this was as this was happening.
6: Yeah, I mean thank you for organizing this event first of all. Um, thank you to these amazing strong women who are you know choosing really to relive their trauma every time they want to educate the public about the gross injustice that their fathers have faced. I know it's not easy, and I have so much respect and admiration for you that you continue to do this, that you push yourselves, you're, I think most of you are mothers here, and, you know, Tasneem, soon to be mother, (laughs) she's the newlywed, Um, I'm acting like the the pushy auntie. Mm But thank you guys for coming today and sharing your stories and always being there to fight for justice and leading the fight. And I'm constantly um, in awe of families who are very much their loved one's biggest advocates. So thank you. Um, And that's pretty much the story of the Coalition for Civil Freedoms. It's family members, impacted people, former prisoners who are, you know, we just came together under the umbrella of this organization to continue to fight fight for, Uh, cases and on behalf of prisoners that very few people are remembering who are fighting for them. Um, And so our story began um, because my father, as you mentioned, was a political activist, a Palestinian American. Well, he was everything minus the swearing and ceremony. I mean, he had come here as just a teenager at 17 years old in 1975, very much believed in this idea of a free America, where he could speak against injustice and speak out that there's a democracy here. And for better or worse, he believed in this American dream, in this um, promise of of free speech, of the First Amendment, and um, very much lived his life according to these ideals. Um, And so when he spoke out for Palestinian human rights, he became a target by the Israel and the Zionist lobby, um, they targeted him, the FBI, um, since the early 90s. I always say that since I started using a phone in my life, I was under surveillance, basically. Um, it was, I don't know, I think as early as 1990 or something they had started. Um, uh, you know, he was under a FISA search and they wiretapped us. Uh, I'm seeing a cute girl over there. <laughs> um, Smith's daughter. Um, but you know, I was nine years old or 10 years old the first time uh, my house was raided. Um, I was 12 years old when my uncle Mazin, a stateless Palestinian who um, was a graduate student received his PhD at the University of South Florida in Tampa when he was arrested and kept for three and a half years initially under the Clinton administration, uh, imprisoned and held under secret evidence. And my father helped lead the fight against secret evidence, formed a national coalition with many uh, civil liberties and justice organizations, got um, a bill introduced into Congress that was almost signed into law by the Bush administration on guess which date, um, September 11th, 2001, that was gonna be the day in which Bush was gonna sign a law banning the use of secret evidence that um, overwhelmingly, if not only, um, affected Arabs and Muslims. Um, and this was all um, these efforts to target and criminalize Arabs and Muslims pre 9 11 were led by the Israel and Zionist lobby in America. As you mentioned in your book, it was the ADL that had um, initially contacted, I believe, the Treasury Department or, w- or whatever it was, because they couldn't stand to see a legitimate Palestinian American charity that had uh, mainstream acceptance. They couldn't stand to see that Palestinian Americans were making waves in this country. And so they chose to cast, um, you know, this um, suspicion against them. And, you know, I always say the terrorism industry was invented in Israel and brought over to the United States and 9-11 was a convenient pretext to then cast Palestinians in this terrorist light. So unfortunately, um, all these things came together, the Israel lobby, the Islamophobia industry, um, and this uh, new terrorism industry that began um, targeting early leaders and in institutions, uh, or sorry, um, the leaders and in institutions um, in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Um, of course, you know, hearing their stories of um, you know what it was like, the, the early morning raid, I was 17 years old, I was living with my parents, a freshman in college, Um, When that happened, my younger brother was 12 years old. My youngest sister was nine years old. We were all awoken to guns drawn to our face. Um, I think, you know, I don't know. Um, Luckily, my dad had time to get dressed. I think my mom tried to hold them off. That sucks that their dad was in his pajamas, Um, but the media, the local news was there waiting. Um, The FBI had given them a tip and they were all too eager to capture footage of my dad with handcuffs being forced into a cop car, so um, I'm glad he was at least uh, dressed in clothes then. Um, You know, I think uh, it, you know, they had us take my brother, they had me drive my brother and sister to school like two hours early, it was really bizarre. They, you know, made me drive them out of the house and um, it was it was an ordeal. I mean, it was a really hard time um, and we were largely abandoned by the community that my father had built. They were afraid to even call us on the phone. People, you know, our phone wouldn't stop ringing off the hook, I'm sure every one of these women's fathers have, you know, they've all had similar experiences with their fathers being pillars in their community, um, you know, responding to every incident, you know, conf- you know playing the role of conflict resolution. Um, but then when it became our turn, we needed help, you know, the silence was completely deafening. Um, and so the story, you know, The Coalition for Civil Freedoms was an idea my father had. He conceived of it in his solitary confinement cell, where he was kept for, I think, over three years, he was held in solitary confinement. And he wrote the plans for this organization that was going to defend the rights of uh, American Muslims after 9-11, targeted in these false terrorism cases. And he smuggled these papers out to his attorney. Um, (laughs) I don't know what, you know, I don't know if um, she remembers this uh, when he gave her the plans for the the Coalition for Civil Freedoms, but it wasn't until a couple of years later after he was acquitted of most of the charges, had to take a super watered down plea deal because we didn't have the money to go against the US government again for the second time. And you know, nor did we think that we would be lucky enough for um, a jury that really set aside all fear to acquit, you know, four Palestinian Muslim men in their case. So um, he eventually pleaded guilty to a charge that, um, you know, he would serve a short amount of time later and then be deported outside of the United States. And then another case happened in Virginia where. This rogue, very right-wing Zionist prosecutor tried to get him any way he can in what we called a perjury trap where he kept calling him before a grand jury to testify, where he can basically ask him anything he wants and then charge him with either perjury or obstruction of justice, um, slap on terrorism enhancement and put him away for 20 years. So he refused to play that game. He exercised his uh, Fifth Amendment right. and. you know, there were a couple of other legal issues that um, you know, we were disputing that his plea agreement said he didn't have to cooperate with the government, but eventually he was released from prison, kept under house arrest for the next seven years, and it was then that he brought together 18 civil rights organizations, organizers, and community leaders who um, were advocating around these issues in their local communities separately. He brought them under the umbrella of this coalition. Um, and where we continue 10 years on, on um, we just had our 10 year, 10th anniversary gala, uh, marking 10 years of defending the forgotten victims of the war on terror. Um, so we're continuing the fight still.
1: Yeah, well, thanks for that, Lena. Uh, you know, thanks. thanks for I was able to meet thank <laughs> your dad, not in, not in prison, but in Istanbul a few times. And of course, yeah. all doing Zoom events. Uh, he's uh, just an incredibly productive guy. He just does so much. Uh, you talked about the secret evidence, which is really, I mean, you talked about it rather quickly, but that was a huge part of the work that your dad did. And he was instrumental in getting George Bush this close to actually signing it into law. And this would have been a massive, massive uh, reform. And of course, you know, uh, <laughs> was, I, I, think, I think that there was so much secret evidence in the HLF, in the HLF trial. I mean, there were, there were, there were transcripts translations of transcripts of their phone conversations that they couldn't even, that they had no access to looking at and reading. I mean, the number, the, the amount of secret evidence and, of course, Trump dump evidence was was beyond belief. So if that would have been successful. And there's also a documentary about your dad, right? It's not Al Jazeera, mm-hmm. or is it Al Jazeera?
6: No, it's actually a Norwegian filmmaker. Um, and she happened to make this documentary called A Stone's Throw Away, about these children at the Dehesha refugee camp and in, in, I think in Hebron, right? Is that where it is in Khadid? Or is it Bethlehem, Dehesha? Anyway, um, Bethlehem, she- Bethlehem, yeah. Bethlehem, okay. Um, so she happened to be in Florida at the time for personal reasons. Um, and we met her at a film screening of this film on Palestine and she got to learn about uh, my father's case. We were still pre-trial at the time and she couldn't believe it. It was such an unbelievable, insane story. Um, and she asked us if we you know would would participate in her documentary um and I think I don't know that we consulted with our lawyer. we just did it. I'm sure lawyers are a lot more careful, but um we're we're known to make a ruckus, and for us, you know we we talked to anybody who would listen, we wanted to tell our story, so she um, did this documentary and eventually interviewed her attorney after the acquittal and um, interviewed a juror, I think a couple of jurors. Um, and it was really um, Very an impactful film. Yeah. yeah, thank you. It's called Great. USA versus Alarian. It's available. You can Google it and anybody can watch it online.
1: I remember we watched it. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, you talked about the American dream and how, you, you know, these, these wonderful people who happen to be Palestinian Muslims are in America and they're doing so much good and I remember uh, talking to Hassan and he was telling me how he went back and, you know, he, he was flying back to the U.S. from Jordan with his, uh, his uh, you know, they'd just been married. Him and his, you know, the, and his wife had just been married in Jordan. They were flying back and he said, here, you're going to be in America. You don't have to worry. You can go, to, you can pray whenever you want. You're going to be free. You're going to have all the freedoms that you didn't have before. Um and then, of course, things turned out very, very differently. And I'm glad you brought up the ADL, too. I just want to mention there's a great campaign called Drop the ADL. Because the ADL pretends to be the civil rights organization that helps progressive causes. And they're actually a right-wing, you know, Zionist, just, you know, extreme.
6: Islamophobic, Islamophobic
1: yeah. Islamophobic organization. And they were behind um, a lot of what happened to your dad and a great deal of what happened to the uh, to HLF. Uh, let me go back to uh, everybody else now. Uh, maybe Asma, tell us w- when um, when was the last time you saw your dad? When? How often do you visit him? Uh, what's that experience like? What's it been like to, to over the years to be able to see him? Have you been able to see him?
3: Yes, I have. So, with uh, with COVID situation, I think it's been now a year actually, almost a year. No, actually, it's been since the March right before the COVID hit and all the lockdown and everything happened, um, me and my sister and my brother went um, with my daughter and I I was still pregnant with my second child at that time. Um, And, you know, in each prison, there's different rules and different, you know. um, So whenever my um, daughter, Goes, I expect her to bond with her grandfather and sit in his lap and everything. But, um, you know, this one, he's right now in Pine, in Pine Knot, Kentucky, so in the middle of nowhere, um, small town. And we have to fly, get tickets, and then get hotels. And all that co- you know, it's just like thousands, ends up being more than $1,000. And it's just a hefty cost to just visit your father. And, um, and, So we get there, and um, uh, it's 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 very nerve-wracking, and every time I'm just very nervous because um, twice before we got we visited him this last time we actually got turned away, rejected. The first time it was because they have these machines that sense like um, you know drugs, and it was with me and my sisters and. Um, we got tested positive twice for it and everyone knows those machines are faulty Um, and so the the guard said it doesn't mean that you've abused drugs it's just you've come in contact with it so whether you touched a gas station pump whatever cash you you know or whatever so they basically um, you know turned us away after we have we were anticipating to see him and traveled all that way to see him and it was very heartbreaking after you know not seeing him for more than a year Um, and so that kind of traumatized me and it is a tactic you know to to just discourage you to come and visit your father Um, same tactics intimidation that they do you know in, in Palestine how they just discourage you from coming to visit your homeland same thing and so was it a it, year
1: before you were able to see? Why did it take a year before you were able to visit him?
3: Well, because because before that, what we would we would book the ticket and then we would call before we we get on the flight, like, you know, a day before we get on the flight and it w- they were on lockdown. So if any fight occurs, they lock them all down and then no visitations are allowed. So basically, we didn't even get on the flight the first time. The second time, I was in the air. I was in the airport, and our flight got canceled. So it was just a series of just like in a row, we we weren't able to see him. And then finally, we were able to see him. You know, we got turned back, and so then come a year later, and I booked a, tic- a ticket. Thankfully, you know, we got in. Um, and then at that time, there was like you know a guard that was that had something against my father and was like watching us, like, you know, like a watchdog and waiting for a second, waiting just so we can do something, you know, so he can just like terminate the visit basically. And he told my dad, it was like something like, um, uh, you know, taking the snacks when you buy snacks from the vending machine and you, um, you're not allowed to like share it with the inmate. So, um, you know, my, my, my brother put it on a plate and my dad was eating from it and then he would he came to him he's like one more warning and you know I'm going to terminate the visit so it's like they they even when when he's he's in the prison they're like looking for ways to to just um it's just more injustice you know and so we were um and then my daughter wasn't allowed to like get on his, uh, you know, sit on his lap or just bond with him. It was just, it was, and it was very difficult because she's a toddler, you know, to have her just sit down, you know, next to me or just away from, away from my dad, her grandfather. And so the visits are always like uh, bittersweet because first you have the ang- anxiety leading up to the visit. Am I going to, am I going to be able to go in or not? And then once you're actually in, it's never a guarantee that you're going to even stay in, you know, or you're going to be allowed to just, you know, remain, stay visiting him. And then after, after you visit him and you have a nice time, you know, seeing him and, and hugging him for a very short time, because they only allow hugs in the beginning of the visit and in the end of the visit. Um, any other time during the visit, you have to be across from him, not next to him um and it's about like maybe I would have to say like three feet um across from him and then you're just it's like you're just yelling because like it's kind of a cafeteria style and there's so many other visit um visitors and inmates um and so it's and then after the visit visitation's over um it it hurts you a little bit because you know that you can just go back to the comfort of your home and leave your father and he's just going to be you know kind of essentially stuck there and although my daughter was only two at the time she already sensed that this was like something was weird about this and she said she told me um in Arabic she said, like which means she wants her grandfather to be with her she said why isn't he coming with us and she said uh um, car she said like why isn't he coming with us in the car um and and she kept on like kind of whining and looking at him and say, and say come on come 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 to the car with us and that like basically set off my dad and like he started tearing and he, he was just like, he couldn't believe that a two year old can be able to understand that this is just not the way it's supposed to be this is not natural for me to visit my grandfather, and then us saying bye and then never seeing him again for you know, God knows how many months or years even. So it was yeah, it was pretty sad to see that. Just because it was my first time experiencing that before I had kids, I, I was never envisioning that it's this is still going to go on. He's still going to be you know in prison after that. After I have kids, and then I would have to explain to them, um, you know, that your grandfather is in jail for such and such. So um, that's kind of just like a little summary of just my experience visiting
1: him you know i uh, th- th- these guys are not my father they're not you know i'm not related to them but uh, that that, that bittersweetness that sense of when you leave is uh i, I can uh i, I can I, to a certain degree i can relate to that because you know i i i feel in love with these guys they're like you know you can't not with these with these incredible men and they're locked up in these in these um, in, in these horrifying prisons and these horrifying institutions with 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 killers and criminals and and the whole visitation uh, experience is yeah, I talk about it a little bit in the book as well. And I remember sitting with al-Rahman, I know his son couldn't participate his, uh, with us today, but. And um, actually, Abdurrahman was supposed to be released this month or last month, actually, to a halfway house, but it's been delayed. And I understand he's in solitary confinement now for a month and hopefully he'll be released to the halfway house next month. But he said to me, look at all these tough guys. We're sitting in the visitation room and, you know, he said, when everybody leaves, they're all they're all in their beds crying. All these tough guys are in their beds crying um, because of that that experience is so, so difficult. Um, let's see, uh, Tasneem, uh, your dad was in Long Beach for a while and that was kind of convenient, I think, right? For a little bit, coming up from San Diego, but then they moved him. Can you talk about it? He's, been, he's also been going you know, th- throughout the entire country. Can you talk a little bit about when, when did you see him last and how how's your experience with visiting been?
2: Uh, Yeah, so my dad has hopped through uh, multiple prisons. Some of them are uh, more medically oriented. He, I mentioned before that he's had some medical conditions where he had to get some surgeries um, and he had been requesting to come closer to us because we don't, uh, because we live all the way in California. Um, So he was able to eventually, I'm not exactly sure when, I can't remember the timeline, he was able to come to Long Beach. And then um, one day we, we didn't hear from him and, we find out that they transferred him to Louisiana and we have no idea why and what's going on. So he's currently in Louisiana. Um, the last time I saw him was uh, over a year ago. Uh, I was uh, in Texas and I was actually with my, I was visiting my brother Omar and um, there was also an event that was happening at the time. And um, I actually remember seeing Nida and Zahira and I saw Smet's sister. And, um, Sada, and so it, it started to bring back some memories it was over a year ago um, and I I didn't really think much of it but on my flight back um, I just started crying and um, my husband's like what's wrong and I was like I miss my dad I just I want to see him um, I don't I, I want to see him I don't care what it takes and so we like booked a ticket to see him I think it was last November and that's the last time that I saw him this before COVID even started, and it's very similar to what um, Esmet was saying in regards to the visitation, like there's a lot of butterflies, there's a lot of being nervous, you don't know what they're going to do, you have to act extra nice, like you owe them a favor so that they treat you nicely, Um, and then even then the rules always change, so the past time that I saw my dad when we took pictures, they allow us to take a picture, then they send it to us in the mail, which is, you know, some sort of courtesy, but um, they were like, you can't, put your arm around him like your hands have to be shown so it's like this very awkward picture um you know what we have to remember besides the vivid imagery that we have from the experience um and it's it's difficult because in the beginning process of having to go through the security part and feeling like you're going into this like crazy area and it's it's kind of like a cafeteria style where you're feeling like you're shouting you're not but once i'm like with my dad and talking to him it's as if everything else around me disappears and it's as if we're just nothing we're not in a prison we're not anywhere that's confined we're just talking um and then the nervousness starts to build back up when you realize there's like an hour left or when you realize that time is starting to come up and it's hard um and i think one of the hardest parts is not knowing if it's the last time you're gonna see your dad um and i think that healing always comes every single time. And I think that's probably like the hardest thing to say. It's, um, it's hard because my dad has always been there for us during occasions, um, even like award ceremonies, he would come. And so my like most of my childhood and in college and everything and even like my own wedding, he's not there. Um, and so he's already missed out on so much of our milestones. And so to see him and to be able to like catch him up on life and then be like, is this the last time I'm gonna hug you? Is this the last time I could smell you? Is this the last time I could see you? And it sucks cause you hear about these people who get like pardoned and you hear about these people who um, are, are getting away with things. And then you hear about like innocent people especially with like Black Lives Matter and about Palestinians and, and you're like, this is really, really unfair. Like these people did absolutely nothing. My dad's medical conditions aren't getting any better. And it's just really hard to to hear that and experience that. And like the hardest part is the last look, like right before walking away. That's probably the hardest part Um, because it almost feels like I'm walking away from my dad. Um, And it's it's not a good feeling. And so it's been over a year since I've seen my dad. Um, I'm 100% a daddy's girl. I love my dad and it's just, it, it's good to see him, but it's also really hard. It makes it harder every time.
1: How is he not eligible to re- to be released due to COVID?
2: Um, that's a good question. I we always make a joke that like our dads are special; they're just extra special. That what's normally met as a requirement, he just doesn't meet for some reason, even though he's very high risk. He has multiple conditions, medical conditions going on. He's, um in the elderly area, like, it's scary with COVID, even hearing cases and people having COVID, Um, but for some reason, my dad's not eligible, so.
1: Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for that. It's, it's heart-wrenching to see these guys, and why did they move him from Long Beach anyway? Did they explain?
2: No, that's the frustrating part, is most of the time when my dad would get shifted between the places um, in Indiana or in Texas or California like we knew he wanted to come closer in California but whenever they move they don't tell us Um, they you know they move them and then after they're moved and everything then we find out that they're moving him Um, so he's in Louisiana now and of course that's harder for us anytime we see them in another state it's the flight and the car and the hotel and um, it's, you know, it's hard. And especially like Asmat was saying, if, if they turn you away, it's, it's difficult to be able to mentally prepare for that kind of experience and then be like, oh, it's not happening. And then having to like relive that every time um, when we should be able to sit with our dads um, because they didn't do anything wrong.
1: Not only did they not do anything wrong, these are the finest men uh, walking on the face of the earth. I mean, literally some of the finest people. Uh, anybody will ever meet. I remember, um, you you know, one of the times I met, I think the first time I met Mufid, he had just come out of the CMU. And he was talking about how uh, his daughter brought his grandson. And they did not allow him to kiss his grandson, not even for a moment. And then when I visited him, he was in a medium security prison and there were kids running around. Because the visitation was much more relaxed. And he's looking at me and he goes, you know, this is the first time in years, years since I saw kids running around and heard kids, you know. And this is a man with, you know, again, like all the rest of them, with children and grandchildren and, and, and such a love of family. Um, uh, uh, so Nida and uh, Zaira, you told me, you know, Zaira, we, we talked just recently, we texted, and you told me that it's been a year and that's when it dawned on me that's probably true for for all of you that it's been that long. For these, uh, for you guys, not to see your dads. Um, talk about the vis- visiting Shukri, and you know a little bit, and when you saw him last, and stuff like that. Can we...
6: Yeah.
4: Okay, it's working now. Can it's you hear out. us? Okay, this <laughs> always happens to us.
6: Now you're muted
1: again. What happened? Okay. Muted. There we go. There. Okay. Right. Wow. Okay, we can hear you now. Go ahead. So when did you see him last? And what, what was the time before that? In other words, how was right. it been? Because you guys have to drive all the way to, or get somehow all the way to, to Beaumont, uh, Port Arthur.
5: Yeah. And anyways, like if you just look up Beaumont, you'll find very interesting facts about that that town or whatever you want to call it. Um, actually, we went exactly a year ago um, during Thanksgiving. And at that time went before y'all. there was a plant that had, um, uh, there was an explosion in a plant there uh, near the prison. And so like, it was really foggy and it was like a curfew. And, you know, part of the visitation was canceled. Um, so it was really, really like twilight zone kind of thing. Like it was really crazy. Um, everything was closed, like, we couldn't even get water. I think we had to like, I don't even remember where we ended up getting water. Um, and it was Thanksgiving day too. Um, that was um, like the whole family's last time we had seen him. But because Baba's in, a, in the maximum security in Beaumont, there's always lockdowns. So even before COVID happened, he was continuously in lockdowns. And if, you know, there's always like major fights there. And like Asmat said, one person does it and then everybody um, is, is punished. Um, there are people stabbing each other, killing each other at all times. I think before we had visited him last year, um, there was a fight that broke out in front of Baba and, um, somebody stabbed somebody on the lunch table and the body was in front of Baba and then the, the, the guards tried to mace and so Baba, um, inhaled it and he actually went unconscious it was very scary yeah he had to go to the hospital yeah they they I mean he said I literally think I like died for a minute you know um they were really worried we we found that from someone else it was very scary because I think everyone can relate to that fear of getting that phone call from the prison but it's not your dad who picks up um I think that is um one of the things that we dread I mean especially with my dad facing 65 years
4: um and then my dad is in one of the worst um, federal prisons in the USA. It was actually on one of the, it's on a list. It's like on the top 10 um, most violent prisons. And like, we are always just, we're always not in fear, but we're always like, we have that anxiety, like, okay, what if something happens this time or, you know, and then when we got that call, it's like, it actually happened what we had been so worried about is actually happening right now and like all we knew is that my dad was in the hospital we didn't know anything and then when he called us and explained what happened to know that you know a body had was thrown right in front of him and then he felt my dad fell to the ground unconscious like it's gonna drive us insane knowing that we can't be there right now with our dad um like, it's even hard to imagine that that picture in our head. Um, I, think, I
5: think also like Asma and um, Tasneem were saying, I think the prison uh, visits themselves have become so traumatic. Yeah. Uh, the prison has a very eerie feeling to it. Yeah. It, it. How cold it is in the room, the cafeteria, just seeing your dad come in in the suit. And like Asma and Tasneem said, every single da- time, hands down, they will give us a hard time. And it's just us, by the way um and sometimes the rule will change within the same day like I was there earlier and I had to oh you have to take off your cardigan I can't take it off you know doing my religion know oh, the scarf thing. yeah and I it, and, and you know I had to go back I wasn't able to see my dad and then when you go your dad's like where like where's Zuhaira or where's Nida or, what happened or times like you need to take the scarf off I have to see if you're hiding any drugs underneath and I'm like but you don't do this to anyone else and I was just visiting like the day before oh well rules change like And I think now also it's getting really hard because my son Zakaria is eight and I was always dreading the time where, when am I gonna, like Asnat, you said, you know, that Asil says, you know, the car, or for so long Zakaria, we were telling him this is Sido's job. And you know, Miko, you've met Zakaria. And so he's very, now he has become like a mini Shukri. Like he he wants to get him out, he wants to do, and it's like really sad because I'm at a point where, and I'm a counselor. I don't even know how to counsel my own son. I don't know what answers. I, I don't know what to tell him when he says 65 years before, uh, mama, like, what does that mean? How is he going to get out? When is he? And he's very aware of the BLM movement. He's very aware of everything that's happening in the country. And the fact that I don't have answers for him by itself, it's, it's it, that's traumatic because I don't know what to tell him. I mean, he sees the visits. He sees how they pick on us. They pick on him. They pick on Zakaria at times say, oh, he can come. He can't come. He's wearing khakis. He can't wear khakis. Like, it's like, sometimes the most trivial things or like, like, um, as Matt said, oh, this is like your warning or, you know, um, they'll just end the visit just for the heck of it. You know, they, they know how to give you a hard time. Um, and my dad has said many times, like, I don't want you guys to even come visit anymore. Like, I I don't want to see you guys go through this Mm -hmm. or the visitations that you drive all the way and then they get canceled. Um, you know, and going back to Zachariah, it's just like, (sighs) he's starting to see the fact that, you know, this is unjust and that, what does 65 years I mean, mama like that's longer than anyone can live like you know on top of you know my dad is 60 something now um and so the, the prison visits are just their own story
4: yeah so my baby actually turned eight months and i haven't seen my dad in way over um a year and a half um we, the reason why I went is to tell him that I'm pregnant, and then I haven't gone since then. He's never seen me actually, like, with a tummy or anything, and that's, like, something I've always imagined, um, you know, like, the first thing every girl wants is for her dad to be there um, for her wedding, but I didn't get that, and then I always, oh. wanted, I always wanted my dad to see me with my tummy, but that didn't happen either, um, also because COVID happened, and I was um, I was like seven months pregnant when everything started happening with covid and um, and then my baby was born in March um, my plan was to go literally like right after I have the baby to go see my dad because he mm-hmm. was literally like the first person I would want to see my baby sure. um, but he's eight months now and he still hasn't even met him we sent him photos but um it took a while for them to even get to my dad they actually had returned them before um it probably took like a month to get to my dad and the first time he saw his photos was like at four months and um i don't know when it's gonna be the next time he sees him i really hope it's soon but because of covid we haven't even been able to we hardly even talked to him on the phone so imagine
0: What what
1: do you mean? You used to talk on a regular basis, didn't you?
4: He he has literally um, one
5: hour a day. If they're lucky, they let them out. And in that hour or 45 minutes, they have to decide whether they want to get in the line to make a phone call or like take a shower or take care of like essentials. And, you know, the other day he was telling us, um, you know, Baba, I haven't seen the sun in eight months. And I stopped and I was like, wait, what? Like eight months, you know, with COVID and everything. You know, Baba too. Uh, we tried the compassionate release with COVID and everything. It was denied due to his um, his uh, terrorism file or whatever you want to call it. But not seeing the sun for eight months, like, what is that? You know, who, that's like your simple human right to get, get some sunlight or get some fresh air. And he doesn't even get that. So in that hour, he has to prioritize. Like, do I take a shower today or do I call them? So, so the line know, itself
4: here. for the phone. um yeah. It takes about 30 minutes, he says. So sometimes he doesn't even make it if he's in line. So we'll talk to him maybe once every three days or um, like one minute every other day. Like it's just, it's kind of unpredictable right now at the moment.
1: Oh God, the stuff that you guys are going through these guys are going through, these people, the people, I mean, it's just uh, horrifying. I wanted to mention think that... uh,
3: positive, sorry oh, to interrupt. Go ahead, I please. because oh, no, please, it please. it's all these negative things, but I just want to mention um, sometimes like I, cause we're so in the midst of the situation, I think we can't see like a lot of positives, um, you know, out of this whole situation. But, um, so, someone like my husband, for example, like would speak to my, to my dad over the phone. And he always says like, you would never think that he's in prison. Yeah. Like he sounds like his voice sounds like he is, um, you know an old guy and, and sitting in front of the beach in hampton like he's just so relaxed yeah. and like how how's that possible like and i think it a lot of it has to do with the faith but um and the fact that my dad explains to my husband like he, he memorized the whole um Quran, which is the holy book um he um, he does yoga he exercises um, he he developed a new talent of drawing and painting and it's amazing he sends us like you know um, portraits and um, and drawings and such that we hang in our in our house and um, he subscribed to like 10 magazines and he's just <gasps> an, an avid reader what? and educated on so many topics <laughs> educated on so many topics and so like to the point where my my husband's like man what am I doing with my life like your dad is so productive you know um so it it, it is nice and refreshing to know that um yeah my dad's yes physically locked down you know he's he he doesn't have freedom but his soul is just so free and he um and he's not allowing like you know the situation around him to kind of bring him down or depress him, um, and I think that that actually reflects um, on us, uh, you know, or projects on us. Because whenever I hear his voice and I hear the the positive, strong um, strength from him, you know, it kind of um, it, you know, and it, it gets instilled in me, and then I can kind of reflect that through through my life and throughout my day. And so, just just wanted to, you know that out there because you know so many that's wonderful
1: our daughters are talking to each other i don't know if you noticed that she thought my daughter thought it was her that she was seeing herself in the, in the screen. Oh. um and it's interesting because i was really i was gonna kind of wrap it up with exactly that because my impression of all these five men um, who are really in, in, in these terrible prisons, is that they're actually completely free. They are free men. Um, every single one I spoke to talked about, talks about, uh, their faith, like you said, um, their ability to carry this, you know, this, this terrible burden, but to carry it and, and to turn into, into something positive. um, it's really, it's really, an, it's really incredible to see. And I mean, like I said, I'm really, really, really glad you brought that up because I saw that in each and every one of them. Um, I mean, visiting Shukri, you know, he's like such a big smile. I walk in, it's like, you know, it's like, I'm, I'm just, you know, feeling so terrible and I'm sitting with him and he's encouraging me and I mean, that sort of thing, you know? And your dad, smile has written to me so much about exactly what you talked about, the faith and the, the spirit. Cause I asked them, how, how are you not losing your mind? How are you not angry? um and each and every one of them in his own way uh, in his own strength has this displayed this this incredible strength and this incredible uh peace and really the, the sense is that they are actually free men they are not they're not the ones who are imprisoned at all the people around them the guards the people who are engaged in this in this uh in this really negative uh, environment but they're kind of rise above it all it's really really um it's really incredible and inspiring uh, to see. And so it's been, a, you guys have been really generous. I think we should open it to Q and A. I know that we've got quite a few people wanting to ask questions. And so I'll bring Jamil, if you can, uh, and let's keep the questions, you know, about the, the, the things we're talking about and not you know, stray off to all kinds of other things. Uh, and Jamil, if you can, maybe maybe we have time for, I don't know, three questions or so. Fishing. Yeah, okay. there's a little girl. See, she's over there. She's cute. She's got toys and stuff. <laughs> they're okay. Really, uh, they're here's, ignoring here's, us completely.
0: Here, here's a question from Nancy. The question is: uh, Both Sammy's case and the HLF are so grotesque. Has there been any indication that the government, that government officials, recognize the horrible, overleach overreach they represent?
1: Anybody want to jump in on that? Ladies, please, you know more about this than anybody. Any sense of, maybe Lena, you wanna take Uh, that? Yeah,
6: I I was, of course, sure. Yeah, I was deferring to the daughters first, but um, is there any, you know, I'm not sure, but I was recently um, told by, um, actually the head of CARE Florida said in a webinar recently on my father's case that one of the, I think uh, the prosecutors in the middle district of Florida, he even admitted to him that it was a BS case and that they knew that this, you know, it was completely politically motivated, but they just went along with it. Um, Government officials, you know, I think there's just a lot of fear right now, still, unfortunately, a decade later. I've personally never heard anyone that has made any courageous statement about this case or how egregious it is. as far as uh, government officials go. Um, We still have a hard time getting people in the American Muslim community to even talk about this case. And I think that's why we still come on and do these webinars and do these events. Because if your activism doesn't include at the forefront the travesty and the gross injustice that is the HLF-5 case, then you're doing your activism wrong. And I think that's why Um, You know, I'm really grateful to Miko that he continues to keep this story alive um, and the daughters who are still advocating for their father. So um, until we have a lot of people talking about this case and clamoring about it, I can't imagine there being any government official or lawmaker or anyone, um, you know, feeling the need to take up this case, unfortunately. So I mean no to answer your question no but we do have a bill called the entrapment and governmental overreach relief act that ccf's legal team drafted um, and we have been trying to mobilize support for it from communities Um, our uh, chairman of the board steve downs um, yeah i'll send you the link to the where the ego bill is Um, he met with um, i want to say in 2019 he met with probably the offices of 90 lawmakers Um, And a lot of them privately, their staffers privately expressed, um, you know, an interest in what this bill does to reverse some of these um, governmental overreach policies like secret evidence in criminal cases and proceedings that are just, you know, evidence that is just shown to the judge to prejudice him or her against the defendant, Um, the use of entrapment and sting case um, to, uh, you know, ensnare vulnerable people in a criminal plot. Um, And uh, also that uh, material support should not include um, charitable money. Like it should only be, you know, things that actually funded violence or acts of terrorism, but not things like, um, you know, charity as in the case of the Holy Land Foundation. Um, I'm probably forgetting something, but we will link to that um, page. Uh
0: Okay, what's next? Next question. Um, Next question is from Tasneem. What advice do you have for young Muslim and or Palestinians who are involved in grassroots organizing?
1: Jasneem, you did a lot of activism and organizing when you were at college, were you at San Diego State? Yes. (laughs)
2: Um, I would say, I'd say kind of what my dad said. Um, Before with this trial thing, my dad, Um, would tell me no matter what happens, no matter what it is, don't stop standing up for what's right. Don't stop being active. Don't let anyone tell you um, that it's wrong. And yeah, it's scary because anytime, you know, somebody's standing up against oppression or somebody's standing up for what's right, it's shaking something. So that means there's some turbulence happening where those who are in power don't like it. And, um, you know, even not to bring in religion, but because we're so strongly founded on it the prophets went through experiences where they're calling to truth and there's turbulence that happens and people call them names or they try to accuse things and you know our fathers are are proud for being able to serve those who are in need and did absolutely nothing wrong and even outside of um, serving the Palestinians within our own communities and even within the prisons now like my dad's helping people like learn Arabic or um, learn the Quran or helping them um, with their faith and everything like that and so I would encourage you to continue doing it. It may feel like it's hard at times because the pressure from others um or people calling you names or you know what if i get arrested and just remember that like at the end of the day there's a reason why you're standing up and even if you're not the one to be that final push for justice you're that one person also in that direction where it really does take an effort a group effort for justice to be um there and i think when it comes to in college it's probably a lot easier because there's you know you have your group of friends but don't give up you know why you're standing up for what's right stand up proud and if anyone else tells you tells you otherwise just remember when history's been being written in the books it's going to be written that you stood on the side of what was right um, and what is right versus just standing by or hiding away or the opposition of that so that's my feedback um, and thank you for standing up especially if it's if it's not even, you know, if you're not even Palestinian, you're standing up for the Palestinian cause, that's a really big deal.
1: Yeah. Any other of you want to address that? Or should we move to the next one? No? Okay, let's do the next one. Go
0: ahead, Jamil. Okay, this one is from Robert. To what extent do you think these arrests are for show for political reasons? It reminds me of what happened to Awlaki, the American Taliban who was driven out of the US and eventually killed, all to make us feel safe that we are being protected from terrorists.
1: To what degree this was political?
0: Well, uh, For a political show to create like a, a, a veil uh, or a reminder that we are, the US is constantly protecting us from terrorists. You know what I mean? So he's talking about the motivation of, of the motivation about. of the charges. Yeah,
3: I think a lot of people say that this case should have even been been conducted in Israel or like in Palestine. It was purely political. Like even one of the prosecutors was like a Zionist. I mean, other one was Islamophobe. Like it was very. Um, and then the expert witness. Yes. you know, coming from the Mossad, like all of that was just very, very political. Um, and, and then just very selectively choosing the five defendants, you know, because of guilt by association. Um, there, were, there were lots of, you know, men working or women working in, in, in the foundation. There were a lot of people that donated, but why did they can select those five, you know? Um, and because our our fathers were very active, um, you know, protesting and all of that, um, they, it was easy for them to take them, to pull them away from their communities because of their leaders and to make examples out of them. So my father always says that I'm paying the free, the, the, the price for freedom right now of the Palestinians. Like, because, this is, this is what it takes, right? And so um, when they were actually taken, there was a huge impact on the community. Um, lots of people fearful. Um, so they actually succeeded in a way because it made people like, you know, scared to stand up and um, to protest and all of that because they didn't want to, um, you know, be torn away from their families that wasn't like something that was, they were willing to sacrifice, of course. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was very political um, to a high degree, I would say.
1: I see, I see in the chat, uh, Linda Marino, who was one of the attorneys of the case, is in the chat here. Uh, so thanks for being there, Linda. And she says, if the defendants were found guilty in Israel, they would have served a total of five years in jail. Um, which is quite incredible. Another thing uh, in relation to the politi- to this this being really a show, a show trial in a way, um, to show that the government is doing something about terrorism. I actually, I actually uh, allude to that in the, in my book, in Injustice, because right after nine eleven, um, the um, there was a sense that something had to be done and quickly. And they even talked about, let's just, let's just arrest the, you know, let's just pick up the, you know, the, the usual suspects, you know, the usual suspects, Muslims, Palestinians, you know, people who were dealing with sending money, stuff like that. And of course, HLF you know, was, was at the top of the list because they, they, they meet all the, all the, you know, they check on all the, on all the items. You know, but that was definitely what it was. It was a quick, which is also why they were so confident in the beginning with the civil case against the government that they would have it all uh, you know they would be able to turn the uh, um, the designation of being a terrorist organization or supporting terrorism and so forth because it was such it was it was it was so absurd um maybe one more question and then we call it a night anything else Jamil? yeah
3: yeah
0: there there's one more here um that that I think is, is worth covering um, this one is uh, anonymous, was emailed to us. Have there been any appeals by the HLF-5 or on behalf
1: mm-hmm. of them? <laughs> there have been every appeal under the sun. You got anybody, anyone of you want to talk about the appeals? In fact, the appeals, the first appeal was, uh, was when I first heard about the case. Ooh, any of you uh, would like to talk about that? I think it's important to mention that a little bit. Anybody want to jump in?
6: I mean, I can just tell you that it went all the way up to the Supreme Court and they refused to listen to it. So they've exhausted every legal option that was available to them. And now they're attorneys who, uh, you know, probably in one of the very few cases where the attorneys just to give their clients a shot, you know, Linda just mentioned this to me, um, you know, there's something called a 2255 appeal, which is appealing um, your, your conviction based on some kind of error on your defense attorney's part, and although, of course, the attorneys valiantly defended them, they were willing to throw themselves under the bus just to give these guys a shot. That if there's a lawyer out there who's able to look at the transcript or see, you know, any sort of avenue for, for appeal, that they would, you know, su- support that and not contradict any sort of effort to free them. But at this point, um, you know, this is why, short of a political solution very little to no legal, um, you know, resolutions, unfortunately, to this case.
1: Yeah, the the, the line that, that the, one of the attorneys, uh, John Boyd said to me was, I would cut off my right arm if I thought it would help. I would cut off my right arm to mm-hmm. see these guys free. And I think that's, uh, any, anybody who knows these guys, I think, um, oh, there we go. There's another one, <laughs> all these cute girls showing up. <laughs>
3: Um, uh, oh, yes, yeah,
1: there's another cute one. I know. Um, anyone who knows them, you know, can relate to that. And I think that's, uh, that's, that's the strength of these, of these, of these people and of you guys. So we're going to wrap it up. It's been, it's been, uh, it's, it's been great to talk hey, to you guys and to hear you guys and to see all these cute babies. Um, and i want to thank all of you for the you know your dedication for your time for sharing with me and when i was working on the book and i was sharing with us all these memories and all this important Baba, information
4: Baba,
3: Baba. just a second sweetie all this Baba, <laughs>
1: yes i know um i know it's not easy but you uh you're stellar women and i know your dads are proud of you as they should be and they've done a great job raising you i'm a dad of, of, of two daughters and so I can appreciate that. So once again, thank you. I just want to say the the, the their names again. Shukri Abu Bakr, and uh, so thank you Zara Nida and uh, Hassan Elashi. Thank you Asma. And uh, Mufid Abu Khader. Sadly, that. his wife Love is that. in Love ICU, that. and so um, his Love daughter wasn't. He that. wasn't. His kids couldn't be here. And Abdul Rahman Alde also. Nobody could be here from his family, and Tasneem and Zayn, thank you for talking to us about, about your dad. And um, yes, you want to say one more thing? Okay, we're gonna finish now. All right, folks, thank you again. Thank you so, so
6: much. Yeah, thank you, thank you for organizing for this. Thank, thank you for having you. us. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks for having for us. Having us. Well, good night. Say bye. Um, I want to, if you guys want to know about the bill, um, just shoot us an email info at civilfreedoms.org and I will send you the info about that bill. So thank thank you again, Miko. Okay, bye everybody. Thank you. Thank you.